Open your Bibles to Luke 15, please. Sunday morning, as I've been working my way through Luke's gospel, we find ourselves at Luke 15. Go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll read verses 11 through 16. We're working our way through the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And then our last verse for this Sunday sermon, so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And you may be seated. Father, thank you for this wonderful parable, so, so dear to each of us, uh, filled with so many wonderful, beautiful truths, Lord. I, I come to it with such an, uh, an enthusiasm and excitement, have, have really longed for years to, to preach this and have been enjoying all of my study in it, but uh, at the same time with the amount of trepidation associated with being able to do justice with, with something so wonderful, Lord. And so I do ask that you would use me to speak to your people um, that this parable, really your word and Christ himself would be exalted in our hearts as, as, as much as uh, deserves to be the case, and that I wouldn't be able to stand between that, Lord. And so speak to your people at this time, and especially about wandering away from you as we see this son uh, do and the consequences for him. This is, uh, there's more here than just, just a son wandering physically away from his father. This looks to our relationships with you and the potential for us to do this spiritually Help that truth become clear to us and prevent us from wandering, Lord. Bind our hearts uh, close to you as we would sing. And so I thank you for this time, Lord. Pray you'd be exalted through it and pleased with it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Sunday mornings, we've been working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse and have reached what is most commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. I told you early on that I'm not thrilled with that title because the parable is actually about three individuals. First, there's two rebellious sons, as we'll see toward the end, and the parable is as much, or sometimes uh, some commentators believe even more, about the father himself. And so we don't want to just focus in on this, this one son. We took a brief detour for a few weeks because of something I saw at the beginning of this parable that I thought was so significant. I wanted to elaborate on it somewhat, showing you a few other examples in Scripture of the potential for God to give us our will to our own detriment. Look with me at the beginning of the parable to briefly review and see an example of this. He said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And as we talked in our sermon on these verses, the first sermon a few weeks back, the son's request was incredibly what? What are some words that come to mind? Rude, disrespectful. The listeners in Jesus' day would have expected the father to do what? Do you remember? Slap him across the face, disown him, announce to the family and probably friends in the community that this son should be viewed as dead. They would even hold a funeral for him. Instead, and that's why at the end the father says, my son was 
and now he's alive. Instead, we read in verse 12, he divided his property between them. So probably the only thing more shocking or outrageous than the son's request was the father's response, giving his son the inheritance to the son's own detriment. Jesus' listeners would never believe a father would respond this way to give his immature, rebellious son the inheritance. No earthly father would do this, which begs the question why the father in the parable would do this. And the reason is that the father in this parable does not represent any earthly father. He represents our heavenly father or the first person in the triune nature of God, God the Father. The father in the parable extends freedom to his son that will be taken advantage of because God the Father extends freedom to people that is then taken advantage of. The father in the parable gives the son what he wants, even to the son's own detriment, because when we push or we keep knocking on that pounding, on that door that God has closed, there can be that time that he opens that door or allows us to have what we want, even to our own detriment. And so don't look past for a moment what the father does with his son here and miss the incredible application it has for us that would hopefully cause us to want to have soft, receptive hearts to God's will in our lives, that when that door has shut, that we don't try to plow through it because there is that potential for it to be opened to our own detriment. We looked at other examples of this in Scripture so that you didn't think this was an isolated event. I don't expect you to remember all of them, just to briefly run them by you. We spent a few weeks looking at these cases. There was Moses' refusal to go into the promised land, and then finally God says, fine, just go and take your brother Aaron with you. The Israelites didn't want the meat, or they didn't want the manna, complained about it. God gave them meat. God told Balaam not to go with Balak, and then God told Balaam he could go with Balak. <clears throat> Two and a half tribes wanted to settle outside the promised land, and they were allowed to, and then Israel wanted an earthly king. In all these instances, we see God's reluctance, or even refusal, and then surprisingly, allowance to each of these people's detriment. Now we're going to see how well, or I should say how poorly, it went for the son after the father gave him the inheritance. Look at the new verse for this morning, verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So I want to draw your attention to a few phrases in this verse. First, it says, not many days later. So the son didn't wait long, did he? He'd had this on his heart probably for some amount of time, maybe at least months, perhaps years, and I suspect he only waited long enough to get his plan together. Second, more than likely the inheritance, because we know that this is a wealthy family that had some number of animals and an amount of land, his inheritance would have included some amount of animals and some land. And so when it says he gathered all, at least one commentator said this indicates that the son converted all of his inheritance into cash because he could not bring it with him. And then he took that cash, and what did he do with it? What does it say in the verse? He squanders it on reckless living. Other translations say wild living or prodigal living, which is where we get the most well-known title for the parable. The Amplified Bible says reckless and immoral living. That word for reckless or wild or prodigal is the word 
asotos, asotos, this is the only place it occurs in Scripture, and it conveys the idea of an utterly debauched lifestyle. We don't get a whole lot of insight into what his time was like after he wandered away from his father, but we do know, at least based on verse 30, which we'll reach later, that he wasted some amount of this money on, on sexually, sexual uh, immoral activities or visiting harlots in particular. Third, notice the words far country. So it wasn't enough for the son to simply be out from underneath his father's authority or roof or moving to the next town over. He had to get as far away from him as possible. It says he had to go to another country. We know that he at least left Jewish territory to go to Gentile territory because later he finds himself among people who are keeping what as animals? Pigs, which you know would not be the case in any Jewish territory. So we don't know in, uh, where in Gentile territory he settled, but we know it was far outside of Jewish territory. Something surprising about the father's behavior, which is really going to kind of bring this uh, theme to an end that we've been discussing over these weeks, is that the father does not go after the son. If you put yourself in the father's place, if you're a father, how shocking is it to you that the father did not go after his son? And this brings us to lesson one. God lets his children wander from him. God lets his children wander from him. Okay, now let me back up just a little bit and get you to think about something. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you ever want to consider what you greatly value or what you consider to be treasure, then think about where your heart is or where your heart is most committed. That's what's most valuable or that's what's treasure to you. Where was this son's heart even when he was home? Where was this son's heart even when he was home? I would say it was far away. It wanted to be in another country. It was not at home with his father. The son treasured some other land. Now, Jesus makes the point, hold on to that, Jesus makes point elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount that it's completely possible to do things spiritually that you haven't done physically. Or there are sins you can commit in your heart that you haven't yet committed outwardly or externally. And what are some of those sins? What could you do? What sin can you commit without going through with it physically that Jesus mentions? Murder and lust or adultery, exactly. Well, I see that here. I see a son who had departed before he departed. I see a son who had went through with this in his heart before he went through with it physically. You could say, I see a son who had taken a journey in his heart before he took the physical journey. He'd already left his father. His father was, he, he wanted to be gone from him. Generally, and when we talk about parents losing their children's hearts, this is an interesting account that reveals that that's not always the parents' faults. I think we tend to think that when, so let me, let me back up, let me ask this question. Had this father lost his son's heart? He had definitely lost his son's heart. Was it the father's fault? So we can't always say that when parents have lost their children's hearts, that it's the parents' fault. I mean, the first 
father, because he is God, he, he had children, and those children rebelled. That's Adam and Eve, and has had children rebelling throughout all of human history. And so it is not always a reflection of the parents when children rebel or when the parents lose the children's hearts. Generally, when we have sin in our lives, we're like this son. We also want to be what? Far from our heavenly father. We don't physically go to a far country, but we do spiritually depart from the Lord. If I was to ask you what this looks like, how do we spiritually depart from God the Father? Well, we don't pray. We aren't in the Word. We don't want to worship. Don't want to attend church. Don't want to attend Bible studies. I have been with people who have told me that they did not want to read the Bible because it was so convicting, because there were things that they were doing in their lives, and they did not want the conviction that came with opening the pages of Scripture and having to be confronted through those verses about the things that they were doing. Now, I'm not going to say, and please hear me because I want to say this carefully, I am not going to say that every single time people who regularly attend church stop attending church because they have habitual sin in their lives and they want to be far from God. But I will say this. Sometimes when people who regularly attend church stop attending church, it's because they have habitual sin in their lives and they want to be far from God. It is not always the case, but it is the case sometimes that when we stop seeing people in our church family, and it's not because they left and have joined another church family, but have stopped fellowship or worship completely, it's because there is some sin in their lives, and to come to church is to be confronted with that sin. It is to be convicted. It is to have the, the, the shame of that sin bearing down hard on them, and they don't want to be in fellowship, they don't want to sing the songs, and they don't want to hear the Word of God. Now, please do me a favor, mark your spot in Luke 15 and turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. We will come back to Luke 15. Jeremiah is the second prophet after the poetical book, so Isaiah and then Jeremiah. So your second prophet, he follows the poetic. If you're in Psalms and Proverbs, go after those to the prophets. <laughs> Does anyone know who Robert Robinson is? I didn't know until this past week. Jake or Jack? Yeah, he wrote, come that fountain. Very good. You learned it yesterday? <laughs> okay. Well, that was humble. I just thought maybe you knew a lot of the authors of the hymns. They have some pretty incredible stories. These men who wrote these, these uh, theologically rich songs often had God working powerfully in their lives, and he was a pastor at 22 years of age. We can expect a lot more from our children. I don't want to go on too much of a rant here, but we can expect a lot more from our children. This guy's pastoring at 22, writing, come thou fount. The fourth stanza reads this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Now, Jeremiah chapter 2 came to mind for me for two reasons. I thought of Jeremiah 2 for two reasons as I was studying Luke 15 this past week, and the first reason is this. The Jews are a good example of the wandering that's described in this hymn and that we see from the Son in Luke 15. 
They were prone, the Jews were prone to leaving the God they loved like the son in the parable was prone to leaving the father that I believe he loved. Look at verse 1. Jeremiah 2, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, now notice this. So God says, I remember the devotion of your youth. I remember your love as a bride. And he says, I remember how you followed me in the wilderness in a land that had not been sown. Now, let me just be clear about something. Nobody wants to go through a wilderness, Nobody wants to go through a wilderness in our day, and nobody wanted to go through a wilderness in the ancient world. And one of the reasons is they haven't been sown yet. No seed has been thrown there. They're not going to have vineyards and, and fields with food and so forth. And so the only way that people would ever walk through a wilderness or trek through a land that has not been sown with seed is if there's a very good prospect of reward at the end, or you have someone leading you that you greatly trust. And that was the case for the Israelites. When they went through the wilderness, they went through the wilderness because they trusted God. They knew that he had a reward for them at the end, that he was going to bring them into the promised land. So they trusted God, and to me, I think this seems very gracious for God to be talking about their time. To be honest with you, it seems gracious to me that God was talking to them about their time in the wilderness this way because they didn't seem, at least not all the time, like they trusted God. What generally characterized at least an amount of the times the, the Israelites were in the wilderness? It was characterized by what? Yeah, groaning, complaining. The, we call it the book of Numbers, but in the Hebrew Bibles, it's called the book of murmurings for good reason. And so they seem like rebellious complainers. But God talks about this affection or devotion that they used to have for him. And he says, the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. And so they used to have this love for God, this zealousness for him. They were like this uh, young bride toward her husband. This is what we would think of as like that first love. Do you remember when Jesus talks to the church at Ephesus who was doing many things well, but Jesus said that they had left what? Their first love. They didn't have that same passion and zeal for him that they used to have very early on. And I think it's got a lot of application for us because we first get saved and we can have a lot of zeal for the Lord, a lot of passion for him. Uh, We have to be aware of that somewhat waning as we're the longer that we're Christians. Sometimes it's really good for people who have been Christians for a long time to be around newer Christians to be reminded of what has perhaps faded somewhat in their Christian lives. It's a really good reason you should have people of different ages, not just physically, but spiritual ages in the church because of the ways that young people in the faith, their passion and zealousness can really encourage or sometimes even challenge those people who have been Christians for a really long time. And so here he tells them, I remember what your first love was like, your devotion for me, your love as a bride. Now, God's approach here is interesting to me. The Jews are hearing a rebuke from the prophet Jeremiah because they're steeped in idolatry. Because the Jews are steeped in idolatry, what would you expect God to say to them? something that is a rebuke. Instead, he reminds them of how much they used to love him. And there, isn't that interesting to you? 
You have people steeped in idolatry. You expect God to come along and give them a strong rebuke. And instead, he looks to them and says, I remember how much you used to love me and follow me. And there are times in marriage counseling when I've looked at couples and thought, I know that there was a time early in your... Now, right now, and I'm not joking, right now, you don't even want to look at each other. You you don't want to be in the same home. You don't want to be in the same bed. You don't want to uh, continue your relationship. But I know when I'm looking at them that there was a time that they were deeply in love with each other, and sometimes I'll remind them of that time, and I'll say, why don't you just, you can almost watch the effect that this has on people when you take their minds back to early, to the early in their relationship and how they used to feel, and you can almost see some of that hostility toward each other diffusing and a, and a sadness sort of swell, uh, you know, wash over them as they do remember how they used to feel and contrast that with how they're feeling at this moment toward each other, and that's what God is doing here. He reminds them of how they used to love him. Now, God the Father in the Old Testament, he looks like the Father in the parable. He lets the rebellious Jews wander like the father of the prodigal son. And when God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, when, the, when God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, what did, we, what did we see Jesus frequently do with people during his earthly ministry? He also let them wander. Jesus let people wander. He let people walk away from him. I could almost be bothered, and perhaps you as well, that there were times when Jesus saw people start to wander away that he didn't do what? Chase them, yell after them, you're so close, come back, you're right on the edge of salvation. There doesn't seem to be a strong pursuit that we would expect. And so my point is, he let them wander away, just like we see the father in Luke 15, let his son wander away. And just like we see God in the Old Testament, let the Jews wander away in Jeremiah 2. I don't want to spend too much time in this, not because it's not important, because I do think it's very important, but because in December I preached a sermon titled, If Anyone Comes After Me, and we looked at a handful of examples of Jesus letting people wander from him. And I'll just briefly remind you, one of the premier examples was with the rich young ruler, right? Did anyone look more sincere or genuine than him coming and bowing before Christ, asking very legitimate questions about eternity and the kingdom of God? And Jesus looks at him, says he loves him, and then adds, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the rich young ruler went away sorrowfully, for he had great possessions." Now, I want to ask you something. When Jesus said this to the rich young ruler, did he know the result that it was going to produce? Yes, he did. Jesus, this is, let me tell you what didn't happen. Jesus didn't say this to the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler walks off and then Jesus goes, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, no, that was too much. I set the bar too high for him. Getting rid of his possessions. He just wasn't in a place to do that. My bad. Let me chase him down and bring him back here and lower the bar. He knew what was going to produce that result, and then he walks off, and I think it's even more shocking. Jesus, instead of turning toward the rich young ruler, he turns to the disciples, and he starts talking to them about how difficult it is for a rich person to enter heaven. So my point is, he did not chase him down. There was no pursuit. He let the rich young ruler wander off. John 6, don't turn there, but just take your minds there. Jesus feeds the thousands miraculously who get their friends Tens of thousands begin to follow Jesus, 
and he starts talking to them, taking them from the physical to the spiritual, about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. The language is so graphic, you could cringe somewhat. It's why the early church were called cannibals. They abandoned Jesus, and then Jesus goes, oh, I can't, I should have worded it differently. I, I shouldn't have said it that way, or I, I should have explained I was talking spiritually. Isn't that when Jesus turns to the disciples and said, no, I, I'm, I'm talking spiritually. I don't, I don't physically mean this. There's no clarification. I wished he clarified it. <laughs> I read it, and I'm thinking, why didn't you provide a little clarification here to help them understand you don't mean this physically? It seems so easy to me. I mean, as a teacher, that's what I want to do, clarify, right? He lets them walk off, and then he turns and looks at the disciples and says what? Are you guys going to wander off too? And you get the impression that if they did, Jesus would not have what? Chased them down. He would have let them wander. He knows that we are prone to wander, and he is not going to strong-arm us into salvation. My point is we see this pattern in the Old and New Testaments of God letting people wander from him like the Father in the parable. It is not isolated to just that event. And this has some parenting instruction for us. Lesson two, sometimes parents must let their children wander from them. Sometimes parents must let their children wander from them. Now, I'm not saying this from experience. I'm saying it because I think there's biblical precedent, but I'm saying it from the number of wise, godly parents I've spoken to who have shared this with me. I see the application from Scripture, so I think this is a biblical principle, but I'm also saying it has been supported to me, and I've got nine kids. I, I want to grow as a father. I want to understand this parenting thing, but I've got it. I've been, or, okay, I, I'll, I was asked to write a book on parenting, and I said, I can't do it yet. I don't know enough about parenting. So I'm trying to learn about parenting. So I talk to wise, godly people, and this is one of the things that they have shared with me. Let me share a story with you that can help illustrate this. About 20 years ago, I had just become a Christian. This is my first time in a Christian church. I was close with the pastor and his wife. They became like my family because my family at the time was so upset at me for leaving the Catholic church. So they told me, they said, we view you like a son, and I viewed them like parents. Uh, God has since obviously reconciled my, my relationship with my parents, although many of my Catholic family members I still remain somewhat ostracized from. But at that time, it was very gracious for God to introduce this pastor and his family into my life and for them to become like family to me or adopt me, spiritually speaking, into their family. So <clears throat> one day, I get a phone call, because it was a small church, that a young girl in the church had run away and many of the men were going to go out and, and look for her, and I could go with them if I wanted. So a little while later, I'm talking with the pastor's wife, who I feel like was really trying to help me grow in my relationship with Christ, so she would share certain things with me. And she said, that girl keeps running away, and it's partly the parent's fault. There was one time that that family was at lunch with us, And the daughter did not get what she wanted, and she threw a fit at the table. And she got up and ran out of the house. She had no intention of running away. She was just trying to manipulate her parents, right? And the pastor and his wife looked at the parents of this girl, and they said, do not chase her. If you chase her right now, you'll be chasing her for her whole life. 
you have got to let her get to the end of the driveway, turn around and see that nobody is chasing her so that she comes home. But guess what the girl's parents did? They got up and they chased after her. And guess what that girl continued to do for years? Run away. That's why I got the call that these men were going to... Because now, I mean, when she first ran away, she's like eight. She's not really going anywhere. I got the phone call and she's like 15 or 16. And now they're really concerned about her going somewhere. And so now everyone's chasing her down. The whole family has to. So the point that she wanted me to learn was that sometimes you have to let children experience the consequences of their actions. You have to be careful regarding how much you chase them down. There's a similar lesson for us in the prodigal son's father's actions. As our children grow up, there must be a point that we let them make decisions for themselves, even decisions that we know are detrimental to them, so that they what? Say it. You don't, you don't want to say it, do you? Suffer. There's a point at which, throughout our children's lives, there are points at which we have to let them make detrimental decisions. Now, there are some qualifications on this. When your child wants to run out on the road in front of a car, you don't let them do that, right? But there are other times when you know that it's best that they fail, that they experience the consequences of their actions because that's how they're going to learn That's how they're going to grow. And it's really difficult when someone you love starts down a path away from God that you know is self-destructive. I don't know that there are many things more difficult than that. Watching people wreck their lives. You've offered counsel. You've pointed them toward the Word of God. But they're free moral agents, and you can't reach into their heart and change it for them. And there's a point when they refuse to listen to counsel or receive discipline that they must be allowed to wander. You can't chain them up at home. You can't chain them up in the church. That's what church discipline is, essentially. It is allowing people to wander, spiritually speaking, through the wilderness. It can be the case with our children in the home. It can be the case with people in the church. Listen to this interesting verse, Lamentations 3.27. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. One more time, but let me read it from the Amplified. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke of godly discipline in his youth. And sometimes godly discipline means suffering. It means being able to fail and make mistakes and experience the consequences or pain from those decisions. Letting a young man bear the yoke in his youth can mean letting that young man wander and suffer as a result. But here's the encouraging thing. When we wander, or when our children wander, what does God have ways of doing? Bringing us back, bringing them back, and this brings us to lesson three. God has ways of bringing us back from wandering. God has ways of bringing us back from wandering, and hopefully you're still in Jeremiah 2. I told you there was I told you there were two things in Jeremiah chapter 2 that I thought of when reading Luke 15, and I showed you one of them, and I want to show you the second thing from Jeremiah 2 that I thought of when studying Luke 15. Look in verse 19. God says, your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter 
for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is one of the first verses that someone showed me after I had become a Christian. I've never forgotten it. It's always been a special verse to me. And the verse is primarily about our sins carrying their own penalties. Notice it says, it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. Now, it could just say that it is evil to forsake the Lord your God, and that'd be true, right? But it says it is evil and bitter for you. Why does it say that? What, what, why does he say it's bitter? Bitter for who? Bitter for the person forsaking God. And we know that because the verse says, for you. It is talking about the person abandoning God and suffering as a result. Sin punishes the sinner. Our own sin often does what this verse says and chastises us or reproves us. 1 Peter 2.20, what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it? 1 Peter 4.15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, sin is going to cause you to be beaten. Being a murderer, thief, or evildoer is going to cause you to suffer. Our sin carries in it its own consequences. And if you want to see one of the best examples of that in Scripture, now you can turn back to Luke 15. <laughs> one of the best examples in Scripture of sin causing, causing suffering or sin rebu- rebuking or reproving, as Jeremiah 2.19 says, look at verse 14. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So we're starting to see the son's sins chastise and reprove him. He learned, so just like the Jews had to learn that it was an evil and bitter thing for them to forsake the Lord their God, this son is learning that it's an evil and bitter thing for him to forsake his father. And notice the timing. Right when he spent everything, what happened? There's a famine. Please do not think for one moment that there is anything remotely coincidental about this. You're looking at a premier example of God's providence in a person's life that right when he spends his last cent, God introduces the famine. God is going to bring this son to such a low point that he can't even look down any further, right? I mean, you're going down so far, there's no further down, Now he can only look where? Up. Notice the end of the verse says he began to be in need. And that word began, it says began for a reason. He'd been in a wealthy family. He'd had a loving father. And so guess what he had never been in before? Need. So when it says he began to be in need, it doesn't mean he began to be in need like when he's out there in the far country. It means he began to be in need for like the first time in his life. And look how bad it becomes for him. Verse 15, he went and hired himself out to the citizens of the country who sent him into fields to feed pigs. Pigs are like the premier unclean example or example of uncleanness in the Old Testament. I mean, pigs are only like second to leprosy in terms of what you're going to avoid or not touch. Pigs are like a close second to leprosy itself. 
To protect themselves from defilement, Jews would never touch pigs. They would never go near them, say nothing about take care of them, or now, as this son ends up doing, serving them. He is a servant to pigs. He goes out to serve pigs every day. There's nothing more repugnant for a Jewish boy. This is the lowest rung on the ladder. There's no, there's no further down from him than serving pigs. He's driven by hunger and need, and so he accepts work that could not be more humiliating or degrading to the Jew. This is rock bottom, but he's incredibly desperate, so he's willing to enter into this loathsome position. And I'll tell you something interesting about when it says he hired himself out to the citizens of the country. The context is a description of how badly things are going for this son. It's like down one more step after another like this. So you don't read this and say, oh, he got a job and now he can care for himself. It's not like things are going bad and now suddenly they go, they go well. That's not what's going on. This is also things going badly. In other words, don't read this and think, oh, he got a job. This is good. Now he's employed and he can make some money. That's not what this says. He became a slave. That's what happened here. It looks like he started working for someone, which would be good to have a job and care for himself. Instead, it's describing the downward spiral he's on, all the bad things happening, and finally he becomes a slave because that's what happened in the ancient world when you didn't have money or when you were in debt. Think of Proverbs 22, 7, that the debtor is a slave to the lender. And slavery, because we have that wrong, wrong view of slavery, kind of we think of, of the southern United States decades ago and, and um, African Americans being abused and stuff like that. That's not really the slavery in the, in the Old Testament. Here, he becomes a slave to a master who's just going to basically work him to death and make him do all the things that he doesn't want to do just so he can get a little food and water and survive. And slavery is a very fitting image because his physical slavery is to serve as a picture or type for us of the spiritual slavery that results when you wander from not your physical father like he did, but from your heavenly father. Let me say that one more time. The physical slavery that this son finds himself in is a picture or type of the spiritual slavery we find ourselves in when we wander from our father because sin makes you a slave. But God gives freedom. And this brings us to lesson four. Slavery to God results in freedom. I could have very well said sin brings us into slavery or sin makes us slave, but I wanted it to sound more positive <laughs> and talk about the freedom that God gives. And so instead of talking about being slaves to sin, I would like to talk about the freedom that comes from being slaves to God. There's this evil belief that God's commands are what? Burdensome, cumbersome, they take away your independence. So God's commands are going to remove your freedom. And there's kind of this idea that God's commands are actually what's going to make you what? A slave. There's a wrong idea that God's commands are going to make you slaves. The opposite is the truth. Sin makes us slaves. Submitting to God gives us freedom. And just consider the very sad irony of this son's life. I want you to get a little bit of an elevated picture 
Why did he want to get away from his father? Because he wanted what? He wanted freedom. He wanted to get away from his father's commands, his father's authority. He goes to this far country where he can finally experience the freedom that he's never had. And you know what? We're looking at something here that has played out in the lives of so many young people to their detriment. How many young people have gotten older and said what? No, no, I want to be free. I don't want to stay in this home. I don't want to be under my parents' authority. I don't like their rules. I don't like the way they tell me to do things. I don't like the things they tell me that I can't do. And I don't want to put up with this anymore. And I'm going to be free. And I'm going to go to a far country and I'm going to do what I want. And how do they end up? Slaves. Slaves to some sin. Slaves to some addiction. Willing to give their right arm to be back in their parents' home and experience the care and love and protection that they used to have. I get the difficulty. God's commands, they can look restrictive because they look like they're taking away our freedoms or things that we might want to do. But what, and what does look like freedom? Sin looks like freedom. It looks like being able to do the things that we're told not to do. But the freedom to sin, it just makes us slaves. 2 Peter 2, 19, whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. John 8, 34, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin, it promises this freedom. If you do this, if you look at this, if you engage in this, if you act this way, then you'll experience freedom. But you talk to the person addicted to pornography. You talk to the person who is consumed by anger or given over to bitterness. Or you talk to the lazy person who can't get up off the couch. And if they're honest, they are not going to talk to you about freedom. They are going to talk about the slavery that they live in every single day to that sin that they are unable to break away from. Listen to these familiar verses. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What are fetters? They're shackles, they're chains, or they're cuffs that are typically put on slaves' necks or ankles. And so this is interesting, and I hope you'll think of this every time you sing this song, because this is what Robert, Robert Robinson wanted you to think of. What did Robert want to become? A slave. He, he said, make me a slave, Lord. Please make me a slave. And why is that? Why did he want God to make him a slave? Because he knew that he was prone to wandering from God, and he knew that becoming God's slave was the only way that he could walk in freedom. Romans 6, 22, you have been set free from sin, and you have become slaves of God. So we experience true freedom from being slaves to sin by becoming slaves of God. Have most of you probably heard of the Old Testament uh, doulos or bond servant? They are servants who are known for willingly choosing to continue to serve their masters after they have paid their debt or would be allowed to experience freedom, but have decided that they are going to stay under their master instead. So they're called a bondservant, or in the Greek, a doulos. But the thing is, and this is misleading because the title bondservant 
What were bond servants actually? They were slaves. John MacArthur thought it was so important for the church to know that bond servants are not servants but slaves that he wrote an entire book on this. I have the book in my office. The book is fittingly called Slave. And it's all about you're not a bond servant or you're not to see yourself as a bond servant of Christ. You're to see yourself as a slave to Christ. And the slaves are also well known for the way in which they became their master's slave. Does anyone know what the master would do? Take him out. Yep. Exodus 21.5, if the plain, if the, excuse me, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, I will not go out free, or I will not become free, even though I could, I will remain a slave, then his master will bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Now, when we think of slaves, we don't typically think of people who can choose their masters, but a slave could say, I want this person to be my master. And this is another way in which the Old Testament prefigures New Testament truths or realities. Does God really write all this down or put this in Exodus because he wants you to go out, grab someone by the ear, and put a hole in it? He puts this down because it's prefiguring, as almost everything in the Old Testament does, Christ and our relationship to him. This is not about Old Testament slavery. It is about the spiritual reality of looking at your master and saying, I want to serve him. Because here's the thing, and just if you don't hear anything, I'll say, look at me for a second. Every single one of you, you're going to give your ear to someone. You are giving your ear to someone or something. There is a hole being driven through your ear by sin, or you're submitting to Christ and you belong to him. Everything we learn about a due loss looks forward to our relationships with Christ and how we have to choose what we serve. We're going to serve sin or we're going to serve the Lord. And the one other thing I can tell you about this is you can't serve two masters. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He'll hate one and he'll love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. So I want to conclude with this. You're giving your ear to a master. You are going to be mastered by someone or something. You can serve sin, which results in slavery, which the prodigal son pictures for us better than maybe any other account in all of Scripture, or you can be a slave to Christ, which results in freedom, because Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. I will be up front after service. If you have any questions about anything I've shared or I can pray for you in any way, it'd be a privilege to speak with you. Father, we thank you for the freedom that you give us. We recognize the slavery that results from giving our ear to sin, from sin being our master, the bondage that that holds us in, which is really a slavery that we can't avoid outside of Christ. In our own efforts, we can't become free apart from the gospel. So we thank you so much for Christ and the deliverance that he has provided. We thank you for the great potential to be your slave and to serve you with our lives and experience the true freedom that comes as a result of that, Lord. And so help us to think about who or what we are giving our ear to or what is becoming or has become our master. And I pray on behalf of the church that it would be Christ. But if we have another master, Lord, convict each person here. And I pray, Lord, that you would provide the deliverance through the gospel. And if there's any way for me or Pastor Nathan or Andrew uh, or any of the other uh, 
men in the church who serve as leaders or women who would have influence over other women in the church, that they would seek one of us out, Lord, so that we could provide the help that only comes really through the gospel as we point people to it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.